Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. In the spirit of Lent, I want to begin today with a confession. I really, really, really love food. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. Judson, we all love food, but you don't understand. I seriously, seriously love food. And those of you who have shared a meal with me, you know, once I take that first bite, weird things start to happen on my face. And my eyebrows start to do weird things, and I start looking like I'm in pain. But I'm not in pain. I'm just having a transcendent experience. (laughs) I had one of these experiences last night with the Humphreys. Had an amazing meal. Next level. Amen, amen. It was incredible. (laughs) But I love food so much, I even get excited about my peanut butter sandwich for lunch. It's no joke, y'all. I love food. But I actually, I began to feel validated about this love for food when I began to discover that the Bible itself is actually one big story about food. You may not believe me, but the Bible is one big story about food. And if you don't believe me, let's look at it. The Bible begins with God setting a table for a banquet. God creates a world where things grow that Genesis says are pleasing to the eye and good for food. And God creates humans and puts humans in this world and designs them, designs us to be hungry. And some of God's first words to the human race are, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, but see all these tasty things. I am giving them to you as food. It's the second command after be fruitful and multiply. And it's interesting to think, but God could have made us to get energy in other ways. You know, God could have made us to get energy through solar power or photosynthesis or kinetic energy. Could have given us a radioactive half-life. But instead, God designed us to be sustained by receiving things that grow, putting them in our mouths, chopping them up with our teeth, gulping them down into our, into our bodies, and then receiving them as life for ourselves. They become life for us. But food wasn't just given to Adam and Eve as a necessary source of calories. Food is not just this necessary but unfortunate pit stop that we just have to take. Food in all of creation was actually given to them, to us, as a means of relationship with the host of the banquet. Food is meant to be a means of communion with God. Eating was made to be a spiritual act. Have you ever thought about that? The theologian Alexander Schmemann puts it like this, all that exists is God's gift to humanity, and it all exists to make God known to humanity to make human life communion with God. It's divine love made food, made life for humankind. Or as one of my seminary professors put it, food is God's love made delicious. 
I love that line. Food is God's love made delicious. We're made to taste and see not only that food is good, but to taste and see, as the psalmist says, that the Lord is good. But as we know, the biblical story takes a horrible, horrible turn. Even with the whole world laid out before them as a banquet, with God as their host, Adam and Eve get up from the table and choose to eat the one fruit not held out to them as a gift. The one fruit from which they were commanded to fast. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The fruit of independence from God. And so Adam and Eve break the fast. They choose to eat a meal without God as their host. And in doing that, they turn food into their God, worshiping the creation instead of the creator, treating this world as an end in itself instead of a vehicle for our communion with God. They treat this world like a wall between us and God's presence instead of treating this world like a stained glass window lit up with God's beauty and glory. And as Paul phrased it in his letter to the Philippians this morning, their God became their stomach. But God launched a rescue mission to bring us back. He calls to himself a people called Israel. We read about that covenant with Abraham this morning. A people that were meant to learn how to live in communion with God again and show the entire world how to be restored to communion with their creator But even with this people, even as God calls them and redeems them out of slavery in Egypt, the same question hangs over them. Will they trust God as their provider and as their host? Will they see food and all the rest of life as God's love made delicious? Will they learn to see this world as God's gift of love to them? Or will they try to grasp for meals and for all the rest of creation on their own terms and cut God out of the picture? Well, once again, as we know, things don't go so well. It doesn't take too long before Esau, the grandson of Abraham, literally trades his own birthright for a bowl of stew. And when God rescues the people of Israel from slavery, Instead of joy, they first immediately begin to worry. Is God really able to feed us? You know, as absurd as it sounds, they start to think, you know, freedom is great, but, you know, those bowls of Egyptian stew were amazing. I kind of miss them. Even when God promises to feed them in the wilderness with bread from heaven, they fail to trust him, getting up from the banquet table that they're invited to and seeking food seeking life elsewhere. But despite our poor taste in food, our failed attempts to live life as our own hosts, God does not give up on us. God wants us at his table so badly that when we rejected his invitations, he decided to come and to retrieve us himself. He came and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's no coincidence 
that the first thing Jesus does in his ministry is to go into the very desert where Israel failed to trust God's provision for 40 years, and he fasts from food for 40 days. And at that point, the scripture says that he was hungry. No kidding. (laughs) And at this moment of Jesus' greatest weakness and his greatest hunger, the devil who first tricked Adam and Eve into eating a meal apart from God came to Jesus and told him to prove that he is the Son of God by turning stones into bread. Make yourself a meal. Be your own host, he says. But Jesus did what we could not. He kept the fast. He kept the fast, leaning on the words of Deuteronomy that says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Even in his state of deepest hunger, he believed that no meal without God at the table will give what it promises. True life that lasts. And he trusted his father to protect and to provide for him. Jesus went on to show us in his life and ministry what it looks like to have God as our bountiful host how to receive our daily bread as a vehicle for communion with God, and not just an end in itself. He turned water into wine to preserve a marriage feast that ran dry. He took a handful of bread and fish and turned it into an overflowing banquet for over 5,000 people. But he also warned those who followed him not to place their hope in the loaves themselves or in the wine itself. He called us, he called people to receive the bread and to receive the wine as something more, as the gift of his own body and blood, the true bread of heaven and the cup of salvation. In other words, he wanted us to receive food itself as communion. Bread and wine is not just that, but communion with God, God's love made delicious. In other words, Jesus calls the world back to the life that we were made for. A life with God as our host and all of creation laid out for us as a banquet, a feast on the love of God. He called us back to a life where creation itself is not a wall between us and God, but a stained glass window that shows us God's glory. And so when we come to today's gospel passage, difficult gospel passage in Luke 13, what's the conversation about? What else but a place at a feast? It's about a feast. Let me read it again so it's fresh for us, and it should also be on the screen. Luke 13, starting in verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? So someone asks Jesus, how many people are going to be saved? I got to know. Is it going to be a lot of people or a few people? How exclusive is this feast with God that you're inviting us to? But Jesus, in classic Jesus fashion, doesn't answer the question directly, right? He never does. Instead, he says, Make every effort 
to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, he'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he'll answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll say, well, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south, and they'll take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first who will be last. Whew. <laughs> Let's be honest. This is a hard word. It's a hard word. This is not one that you're going to find embroidered on a pillow or you know, plastered on a coffee mug or on a t-shirt. It's just not going to happen. But praise God that we worship a real person and a real God and not just a projection of our own imagination. Praise God that we can meet with the real Jesus, the uncensored Jesus, and he is good and he is worth listening to. So what is he saying? What is he getting at with these hard words? Jesus tells this short story, right, where he plays the role of the owner of a house who's just shut everything down for the night. And a group of people comes to the door, banging on the door, trying to get in, and they assume they belong in his house. But he tells them he doesn't know who they are or where they come from. And so they start tossing out some credentials. Hey, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. You came to our town. But how does Jesus respond to these promising-sounding credentials? Exactly as before. I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Whoa, right? I mean, these are people who were clearly familiar with Jesus. They've been around Jesus. They've even eaten with him. You know, if, if these were people today, I could hear them saying, we go to church every week. We take communion every Sunday. We know the Bible. We've read, we've, we've memorized John 3.16. Let us in. So what's the issue? I think the key is what Jesus repeats. He doesn't know them. They don't really know him. There's no relationship. There's no love. There's no communion. The hard truth that I believe Jesus wants us to hear is that we can be familiar with him. We can even eat his food and hear his teaching. We can come to church and listen to a sermon and take communion without truly knowing and loving him. You know, maybe these people in the story did eat with Jesus. Maybe they were in that crowd of over 5,000. Maybe they were at that wedding feast and got to drink that wine that Jesus created. But apparently, they ate that meal without getting to know the host. They focused on a food in a way that made them miss the most incredible thing of all, the presence of their God in the flesh. 
They thought that the doorway into the banquet, the banquet with God, they thought that doorway would be their own religious behavior. But what they missed is that the narrow door that Jesus says they need to make every effort to enter through, that door is not some kind of ninja warrior ropes course of incredible moral and religious achievement. That's not what he's saying. The door that Jesus says we need to enter into is Jesus himself. He puts it bluntly in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the door. Whoever enters by me will be saved. So making every effort to enter the narrow door doesn't mean flexing your moral muscles and showing how much Bible you've got memorized. It means making every effort to know Jesus and to be known by him. It means learning to see all of our hunger as most deeply a hunger for God, letting our hunger move us closer into God's heart. So if I could summarize what the problem is for these folks who Jesus is warning, it's that they want Jesus' stuff, Jesus' goodies and his gifts, his miracles and his meals, the bread and the wine. They want the fruit of the garden more than they want Jesus himself. Like Adam and Eve, like Israel, like all of us, they're grasping after a meal, grasping after life itself on their own terms instead of receiving it as a gift from God. They want the food at the feast without realizing that the main, coast, main course is Jesus, their host. And at this point, y'all, we need to ask ourselves, I think, is it possible that we do the same thing? Do we want Jesus' gifts, Jesus' goodies, more than we want Jesus himself? More than we want God? And, you know, I'll go ahead and lead the charge here. You know, if I'm truthful, there are days where I do this because I want to feel like I'm a good person. I'm an Enneagram one. I want people to look at me and say, that's a really good person up there. He's really got his stuff together. That's what I want. I want that approval. But then when Jesus asks me to do something or to say something that's not popular or that would make people deeply upset, what do I say? No, thank you. (laughs) And at that point, it becomes pretty clear that my hunger for approval is a lot stronger than my hunger for God. It's a lot stronger than it is for God. So what else might we hunger for more than we hunger for God? You know, if you could press a button right now that would guarantee you the relationship you always wanted, the family you always wanted, the grades that you need, if it could guarantee you the paycheck and the job that you long for, or that stress-free rest that's always just out of reach, if you could press the button to get purpose in your life and feel motivated, if you could press that button and be guaranteed that you would receive that right now, but that that thing would be given to you, walled off from your relationship with God, would you want to press the button? Would you want to press the button? Would you turn the stones into bread? Now, it is really important, I want you to hear me, none of these things or our hunger for them is bad. 
Y'all, these are good, good things. And God made us hungry beings, like I said earlier. But it's often the very best things that God has made that we are most likely to treat like an end in itself. To treat like a wall between us and God instead of like a stained glass window that reveals God's beauty. It's the good things that we turn into God things, into idols. I even wonder if we could do this with salvation itself. Like the person who's so concerned about getting into the banquet in Luke 13. Is it possible that some of us treat going to church, treat being a Christian like fire insurance? You know, treat it like a way to get to heaven instead of a way to know our Savior and our Lord? Is it possible that some of us pray to God like God is Santa Claus or like a genie in a bottle who's really just a means to the end of getting what we really want? Do we talk to God when we don't need anything? Just because he is our God and we are his people, we are God's beloved and we are delighted in. Or do we treat God like a vending machine, just trying to put in our quarter, and when the thing doesn't come out the way we want, we kick and scream until it finally pops out? If I could consolidate all this into one question, it would be this. If we got what it is that we are most hungry for, would it be God? Now, that's a lot. I mean, Jesus' words to us are pretty intense. It's a hardcore passage. But his words to us are motivated by love because he does not want anybody to miss out on the feast that he's preparing for us. Speaking of which, guess how the Bible ends? You guessed it. With a banquet. See, I told y'all, the Bible is a story about food. The Bible ends with a banquet. The future marriage feast between God and God's people. The feast it calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. A feast where every tear will be wiped away, injustice obliterated, Death itself swallowed up by God. Scripture promises that God is preparing us a feast of the best of meats and the finest of wines, but a feast where the best part is being reunited to the God that our deepest hunger is for. This is the feast that Jesus is talking about in Luke 13, and he longs for you to be there. He wants you at his table. In the book of Revelation, Jesus sends a message to the church where he takes this banquet image that he used in Luke 13 and he flips it around and puts himself on the outside. In Revelation 3.20, he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. I'm the one banking on the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Jesus is pretty clear. He wants to eat with us. He wants to know us and to be our host. He is hungry for our relationship with us. And as he puts it later in the passage, he's like a mother hen trying to gather in his chicks in his arms. 
But are we willing? Are we willing to let him in? Friends, don't let this be a day where you come and sing and eat and drink without getting to know who the true host is. Don't settle for going through the motions of church today and taking communion without enjoying true communion and relationship with God. Don't settle for seeing this meal as anything less than a stained glass window shot through with God's presence and glory. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's not be a church that does its business while our Lord stands outside and knocks. But how do we learn how to live this way? How do we learn to do this, not just here at this table, but in all of our lives? How do we learn how to see our hunger as a vehicle to take us not just to lunch, but to take us right into the heart of God? How do we learn to receive the things of this life as gifts of God's love instead of idols that compete for our affections? How do we learn to dine with God as our host? I'm just going to give you one suggestion. Try fasting. Seriously. You know, Father Ben talked about it last week, and I'm just going to repeat it again. Give fasting a shot this Lent. It's not too late to begin to try it out. See, fasting is about giving up something that we're hungry for, ideally food, to remind us that our truest hunger is for God and that true life comes from him. It's a prayer with our bodies asking God to be our daily bread. It trains us to live our lives in dependence on God as our host, on God as our source of life, the source of all other things in this life that are good. And it reminds us where our food truly comes from. This is maybe kind of a weird example, but for some reason it came to mind as I was thinking about this this week. I had a good friend named JT in Scotland who had this amazing West Highland Terrier named Theo. And those two were thick as thieves. It was one of the greatest like human-dog relationships I've ever seen in my life. They were so tight. But part of the reason the relationship was so tight was that Theo knew without a doubt that JT was his master and not the other way around. And the thing I always remember is the main, one of the main ways that JT trained his dog was whenever he would, was actually with food. And so whenever he would take out the dog bowl and fill it with food, he didn't let Theo just plunge head first the moment it hit the ground. He made Theo sit, wait for it, and then you would say, all right, I give it to you now as a gift. And what this did was it trained Theo to know that JT was the one in control of the food. JT was the one who gave the food to him as a gift. JT was the source of his provision. And as a result, they had this incredible relationship. And in a way, I think fasting, or even doing something as simple as pausing to give Thanksgiving before a meal, does the same thing for us. It reminds us who the source of our life really is. And it keeps us from plunging headfirst into our dog bowls and grasping after food and meals and grasping after all kinds of things in this life, like Adam and Eve. And it helps us to receive our food as a gift. And all the things of this life is just that, gifts from our good God. 
If you don't know where to begin or how to go about fasting, I recommend looking at the Lenten intro in the New Garden News that Father Ben wrote for us. It's got some great tips, practical advice about how you could go about it. Um, But here's just a handful of, of thoughts or ideas to maybe get you started. So one common practice in the the global church and the historical church is fasting from food on Fridays, the day when Jesus was crucified. Maybe try just fasting from breakfast and lunch on a Friday, from dinner Thursday to dinner Friday. See what happens. Or if fasting from food isn't doable for you or not a good idea for you for whatever reason, try giving up something else in Lent, something that you really are hungry for. It's something that you'll miss. Try giving up social media or Netflix, alcohol or sugar. Try giving up looking at your phone every moment of downtime. Don't take out your phone on the bus or when you're waiting in line. Try fasting from that. Money is another thing that we are very hungry for and becomes a hunger that competes with our hunger for God. And almsgiving, giving to the poor, Giving things away is a great way to break our grip that money has on our lives. Try not just giving something up, but giving something away. But whatever you do, and all of our clergy here, anyone here would love to be able to walk with you and help you in this. Whatever you do, do it in prayer and do it in community. Ask others to join you, to walk alongside you. Ask God to help you to live in dependence on him. Ask God to open you up to receive his love in every meal, every gift, every breath. Brothers and sisters, stay hungry this Lent. Stay hungry for God. And may our fasting teach us to receive our feasting as God's love made delicious. God's own life given to us through the gifts of creation. There's a banquet coming called Easter, resurrection. It's a banquet that you and I are invited to, the foretaste of the greater banquet to come, the marriage supper with our God. Don't turn aside and settle for lesser feasts. Our Lord is standing at the door of our lives, of our individuals and as a church, and he is knocking Do not settle for a meal without him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.